Hey everyone, it's your girl Carly Jones and this is Makeup and Murder. Welcome to episode four of Makeup and Murder. You guys, let me just start off by saying I apologize for the last episode. So I'm trying to get familiar with my mic and I didn't realize that I'm trying to, you know, while trying to do it on my computer, on my laptop, I have to switch mics. So the whole time I was recording the episode last week, it was actually doing it from my laptop, my MacBook laptop, and I had no idea that it was using the microphone on the laptop. Like how stupid can I be? Oh my gosh. But anyway, it's been fixed. I hope it sounds better. It sounds a heck of a lot better to me now. So let's get started. So today I wanted to talk about the Makeup Forever um, Artist Color Pencil. This is just super, super gorgeous. I always constantly get comments on the nude lip that I use, what am I using, the combination I use, etc, etc. Um, so I use that. Like I said, it's the Makeup Forever Artist Color Pencil in the shade Wherever Walnut 606. Now what is amazing about these is you can use them on your lips, you can use them on your brows, you can use them on your eyelids, you can use them in your waterline as eyeliner. You can use them wherever you want. And that is the main thing that I love about Makeup Forever is a lot of their products you can use um, more places than just one in specific. So I do really like this brand and I do really love their pencils. Um, I've bought quite a few in the past few months, um, but I always end up going back to this one. And like I said, it is in the shade Wherever Walnut. You want a beautiful, beautiful nude. And if you are around my skin tone, maybe... Um, a little bit maybe on the lighter side, uh, medium tan side as well. This is just gorgeous. Okay. And before I forget, let me just go ahead and mention, I'm not going to name any names, but I'm going to go ahead and call him out. So if you're a male and you like true crime, just go ahead and click on the Makeup and Murder podcast and just listen to it. If you'd like, I can go ahead and put a timestamp on when the actual case starts because I want this to be for everyone. <laughs> And I sit here and laugh about it because I straight up told him, I was like, it's just makeup. You can listen to it for maybe a minute or two, get it out of the way and then start the case. You don't know what you're missing. So again, if you are a male and likes true crime and murder mysteries like myself, just skip over the minute or two of the makeup and you can listen to the case. Come on. What are you, what are you doing? It's fine. It's totally fine. And I mean, Honestly, I don't want to toot my own horn, but these cases that I find are pretty badass. So, toot toot. <laughs> okay, enough about the jabber. Let's get into this case. Okay, so this case is going to be about Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible. Now, this case is insane. So many twists, so many turns. I mean, I, this might have to be a two-parter. I don't know, but let's get into it. 
The memories of these two beautiful girls have frozen in time, a true story that has been followed for years, a little over two decades now. The moral of this case was that it initially started with a house fire, which then led to a murder, which later turned out to be a double murder. So they had a double murder with a house fire that ended up with two missing girls. After many nights reading and watching documentaries about this case, there was just so much going on. This is the story of two beautiful girls from Welch, Oklahoma. Ashley Freeman was born December 29th of 1983 by Kathy and Danny Freeman. Ashley was said to be very outgoing, who loved the outdoors, hunting, fishing, and just enjoyed life. Her best friend, Laura, Laura Bible, was born April 18th of 1983. She was a fun-loving country girl who raised pigs. The two girls met in elementary school, and even though they separated and went to different high schools, they always remained close friends. Now, in order for me to tell this story and lay out the events of this case from December of 1999, I have to take you back a little further and give you some insight on the Freeman family who lived in rural northeast of Oklahoma. Back in 1998, local police received a call from Ashley Freeman's father, Danny, stating his son Shane had run away and that he could not get him to come home. When an officer tracks him down, Shane tells the officer, yes, I did run away because my father beat me for disobeying him. Shane then shows the officer his wounds, and apparently he had been beaten so bad that he had bled through his underwear and had been bleeding all down his legs at that point. Of course, after the officer had seen what had happened, his father Danny was immediately charged with abusing a minor, and of course, Shane refuses to go home. Which, you know what? I don't blame the guy. Excuse me for not wanting to return home to my father, who not only beat me, but will more than likely beat me again due to the fact that he was charged for doing it, you know? But during the whole fiasco, Shane would often stay with the Bibles. According to Laura's mother, Laureen, he then started acting out, stealing things from the Bibles, getting into a lot of trouble, acting out so bad that it led him to a phase where he would impersonate a police officer. He had stolen a red light and would actually pull people over. Dude, who are you? And I didn't know this, so I am sure some of you didn't either, but apparently it's a common thing that people actually do which is insane to me, and I don't think I will ever comprehend why someone would want to do something like that, but who the heck knows. Anywho, he continues to do this, and about four months later, on Friday, January 8th, 1999, Shane Freeman has a run-in with local police yet again. At this point, this does not shock me at all. But they see him on the side of the road along Route 40 with a pickup truck that had seemed to look like it was broken down, and was later documented to be a stolen truck at that. There isn't much to go off of other than the one officer named David Hayes that arrived on the scene. The officer stated as he pulled up and got out of the car, Shane immediately pulls a gun on him, which results in the officer shooting Shane dead in self-defense. He was found dead at the scene, and the judge ruled that it was an action of self-defense and the shooting of Shane Freeman was justified. And later in 2000, a polygraph was conducted for the officer that responded to the scene and was cleared of any wrongdoing, which 
Hello. Remember, polygraphs do not mean a thing and are admissible in court. Remember that. But remember when I mentioned he was getting into trouble with stealing? Well, the gun he pulled on the officer had in fact been registered to the Bibles, which had been stolen the day before the incident occurred. According to Laura Bible's mother, he had been talking to some people days prior, stating that he was going to either commit suicide or suicide by police. So whether or not that was his plan all along during his run-in with the local police, I'm not quite sure. This information, they were told, seemed odd for the Freeman family. They did not believe that to be true. According to an article in the Oklahoman published April 18th of 2002, quote, I think Shane was running, was trying to run when he was shot, unquote. His uncle Dwayne Vansell told the Globe, quote, that's what he did when he was confronted by authority figures. He would run, unquote. So that tells me that they believe he had to have been running away from the officer at the time he was shot. But autopsy reports eventually came back, which proved that the theory to be inaccurate to that statement by Danny's stepfather, or excuse me, stepbrother. The Freeman family were pretty angry about the outcome of this, so word got around that they were going to file a wrongful death suit against the sheriff's department. In a filing of a wrongful death suit, you have one year from the day of the incident to file the lawsuit. Keep in mind, the incident happened January 8th, 1999, so of course they would have until January 8th of 2000. Oof. Okay, so you now have a little backstory to this case to start you off. Put a pause on Shane Freeman and zoom forward to December of 99, okay? Trust me, I didn't just waste three minutes of your time. This will all come together, I promise. As I said in the beginning, Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible were high school age girls when they disappeared and were best friends and had actually lived across the street from one another before the Freemans moved. Ashley's birthday was approaching, so Ashley and Laura both decided to keep it just low-key and spend the day together. So Ashley's mother, Kathy, takes both girls around the town for a girl's day and then decided to have Laura stay the night at the Freeman home. So on the way home, they stopped at Laura's house to pick up a few things and to confirm with her parents that it would be okay for her to sleep over. As they were leaving, they run into Laura's mother pulling into the driveway. She stops and tells Laura to keep in mind she needs to be up at a decent time in the morning because they have a dentist appointment to go to. Everyone arrives back to the Freeman's home, unloads the car, and settles down to watch a movie. At around 9.30 p.m., Ashley Freeman's boyfriend, Jeremy, comes over to give Ashley her birthday present, and they all have cake and talk to each other for a bit, and then the boyfriend leaves. This part gives me chills. Jeremy, Ashley's boyfriend, was the very last known person to see the girls alive. I mean, think about it. What if you were the last person to see your friend alive? It's super creepy. Hmm. So what happened between 9.30 p.m. when Jeremy left and 5.30 a.m. the next morning? A little over two decades now, and that is still a major ongoing question in this case. There is a lot of speculation and theories that come to the surface in this case, so I will try and stick to the main and more relevant key points. What we do know about the early morning on December 30th, 1999, is that a passerby actually phoned 911 about a house fire. The fire department arrives on the scene at approximately 5.30 a.m. to the Freeman's home completely engulfed in flames. By the time they were able to completely put the fire out, the home had already burned to the ground. Of course, at this point, they are trying to figure out who did the home belong to. 
who was actually in the home at the time of the fire. And with a small town word, all of this got around and they all wanted to know what was going on. Laura's mom, Lorraine, was already at work, and at around 7.30 a.m. that morning, she receives a call from her son, Laura's brother, telling her that the Freeman home is on fire, and immediately Lauren, Lorraine thinks about Laura. Laura's mother is frantic at this point. Do you blame her? And the calls the sheriff's office to um, ask them exactly what was going on and, of course, to find out where her daughter was. And can you believe they tell her nothing? Lorraine calls her husband, which is Laura's father, and tells him the Freeman's home is on fire and they need to head over right away. Once Laura's parents arrive to the scene at around 9, 9.15 that morning, the home has been completely burned to the ground. They have police markers taped all around the home. The Bibles immediately notice Laura's car and it appears to have the keys that are still in the ignition. Now here's where it gets a little odd. It's a crime scene, right? Not only that, but arson is involved. But only one body has been found. Where are the other three? The Bibles explain that the police unit on the scene, including investigators, seem to just be standing around doing nothing. It's an active crime scene. Three people are missing. What is going on? When the sheriff approaches Laura's parents, he informs them that they are waiting for the OSBI. Sheriff Vaughn is the one who reaches out to the OSBI, which is the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations. They apparently cannot investigate themselves. Now, remember that information I gave you in the beginning about Shane, the Freeman's son that was shot and killed by local police? Yep, they feared it would be a conflict since they were involved in Shane's case prior to this incident. And with all that talking around town, they had a feeling there would be a possibly... Um, a pending lawsuit that we had discussed a moment ago. So with the conflict of interest within the two, they did not want to be involved in a lot of this unless they had to. Because, I mean, let's call it like it is. If they did investigate the scene and something were to go wrong, you can bet your sweet ass there would be another lawsuit pending in a heartbeat. So they didn't want to be accused of tampering with evidence or anything of the sort, you know? The OSBI finally arrives around 10 a.m., and starts the process of the search of the area around the home. The search was led by OSBI agent Steve Nutter. The OSBI tells the family that they believe to have found a single body of what appears to be an adult female, but they have to wait until the medical examiner arrives, which was Dr. Warren at the time. But of course, they were not able to confirm at that specific moment that it was Ashley's mother, Kathy Freeman but there wasn't any doubt that it wasn't. The medical examiner does not arrive on the scene until 2 p.m. that afternoon. You guys, it has been five hours since the Bibles arrived at the Freeman property, and at this point, they still had no idea where Laura was or if she was even alive. Once Dr. Warren does her investigation, she sees the Bibles in the distance and walks over to finally give them an update. She tells Lorraine, Laura's mother, that she is unable to say anything officially, but that they found a woman who was wearing a wedding band on her wedding finger on her left hand and had born children. So immediately she knows it could not have been one of the girls. The mystery body has to be Kathy Freeman. Reports do come out later that confirmed it was in fact Kathy Freeman. Kathy Freeman's body was found in her bedroom face down on the bed. The waterbed she had apparently, um, she had exploded. Um, so the water actually preserved her body from being burned completely. 
After Kathy's body was removed, they continued to search the rest of the area where the home once stood. And at approximately 6 p.m. that evening, the OSBI calls it and says, yep, okay, we have collected all the evidence from the scene. Yep, okay, we're dead. Now, I'm not 100% sure exactly the time in which the OSBI actually arrived and started the initial, initial search of the area, but I was watching a documentary on this case about a week ago that stated they were only there searching for about eight hours. Now, that was something that Laura's parents mentioned in that documentary. So if that is in fact true, what in the world was the OSBI thinking? But going with that tidbit of information, the Bibles felt a little bit of encouragement and thought that maybe Danny and the girls did get away and escape to somewhere safe to get away from the fire. Now, was the fire intentional? Is someone after the Freeman family? No one knows. And as you can probably already tell, Laura's parents are no bullshitter people, okay? They are not taking anyone's word for anything. So they organize their own search of the area with people on horseback and cadaver dogs. And it was said that they covered over 40 acres, but unfortunately they come up empty handed, no evidence of any kind. Later on the same night, they are interviewed by the OSBI. And what comes out is that Danny, Ashley's father, apparently had been involved with drugs, primarily using and growing marijuana and had a past with domestic violence. It was said that Kathy's father, Bill Chandler, had a restraining order on him previously. They think possibly it could have been a drug deal gone really bad. Then they asked Laura's parents if they knew of any enemies the Freemans may have had in the past or even the present time. And the only thing they mention is the feud between the Freemans and the sheriff's office. Like I said, the Bibles are no bullshitters. They knew People were becoming suspicious of the department because of that incident and thought it was odd that they had brought in the OSBI so quickly. But in my opinion, I thought it was a good move to have the OSBI come in to investigate the scene, even though the judge ruled the killing of Shane was justified as self-defense and they knew they were not hiding anything. So to me, it was a good call. But anyway, the Bibles finished their interview and they are just as confused as they were when they walked in. No one knows anything at all at this point, and the whole conspiracy sits in the back of their head that they, they just don't know. It gets weirder. Are you ready? The following morning, the news comes out from the autopsy that Kathy's cause of death was a single gunshot blast to the back of the head from a rifle, which proves that she was dead before the fire happened and apparently exhilarant had been used. Exhilarants are often used to commit arson. Ding! <laughs> and some may cause an explosion. Some fire investigators use the term exhilarant to mean any substance that indicates and promotes a fire without implying intent or malice. Some indications of exhilarant used in a fire are liquid found at the scene that may have appearance of gas floating on the water, which presents as a rainbow color along the surface. <laughs> You're welcome for the exhilarant teaching. <laughs> we go from a possible accident to a homicide. And now you have probably already guessed it. Danny, Ashley's father, is looking more and more like a suspect. Conspiracy theories arose, of course, and people began saying that Danny got in way over his head and had him saying something like, 
I will give you Laura and Ashley if you if you give me the deputy that shot my son, creating his own way of justice, which again, that is just a theory. But I can't say I agree with that one because what does that have to do with Kathy? Where would she have to fit into all of this? There was even talk that someone had actually seen Danny driving around in a white pickup truck with Ashley and Laura Bible. A weird one I read also was that Danny's stepbrother, Dwayne, had received a report from law enforcement that stated Danny had been spotted with the girls at a remote cabin. Now, I took some notes um, from a documentary that I was watching a few weeks ago. Um, I can't recall if this was maybe the same day, maybe later on that night or the following day, but at around 5.45 p.m. to 6 p.m., George Vaughn, which was the head sheriff at the time, Assistant District Attorney Clint Ward and Steve Nutter, the agent from the OSBI, called Dwayne, which was Danny's stepbrother, and said there is a mobile home by a pond. Dwayne knew the police um, knew of the area, and he knew of the area as well, um, because apparently they used to grow up there or played there, but it was now a camp. Steve Nutter told Dwayne it was reported to them by a neighbor that Danny is up there with the girls waiting for police to show up for a so-called shootout. Dwayne tells them that if it is true, he will go up there alone and talk to Danny and talk him out of it. They told him, no, don't do that. Don't do that tonight. Because it's dark and someone is obligated to get hurt and they told him it would be okay to run up there in the morning and then to call them to let them know he was there. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that sounds really odd to me. I mean, think about it. Your brother's gone. The two girls are gone. We now know that Kathy Freeman is dead. She didn't die of the fire. She died of a gunshot wound. And you get this call that this neighbor actually seen Danny and the girls, and you're trying to go up there to help and trying to calm him down if that is the case. But then you sit there and you tell him, oh, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Just wait till in the morning. I'm sorry, but that is fishy as hell. And if you don't think that is, there's something wrong with you. But nonetheless, that doesn't even matter now because more information comes out that will change everything pertaining to this case. By December 31st, 1999, the OSBI and police had officially released the crime scene. So the Bibles decided to go out to that area themselves and dig around the ashes to see what they could find. In their minds, they more than likely knew they were not going to find anything but I'm sure they felt better being out and about trying to do something to find their daughter versus nothing at all. But because of this, I think about all these cases I read about or these crime scenes that I see or watch on these documentaries. And when they find nothing, I say, you know what? I can do it. I can do better than you. I can do your job. I can handle it. <laughs> because as they're walking through the rubble and debris, almost instantly, Laura's dad, Jay, finds another body in the area where there was unburned flooring in the bedroom where Kathy was found. You guys, another dead body. Poor Laura's dad, Jay. The body was lying on the floor with its feet nearly under the waterbed area with half of its face missing. He stated that its teeth and chin and jaw were still intact and they, right then, in there, they knew that they had found Danny Freeman's body. Can you imagine being an average Joe, 
going up to a crime scene that was just released as being completed, and I put that in air quotes, completed, to casually look around, you know, maybe to see if you can find anything, and then bam, dead body. It was said that you could see stainless steel wire in the sinus cavity of the body, per Duane. Danny Freeman had reconstructive surgery in the past in which they put in the wire, so that was another indication that it was in fact Danny. When I first started researching this case, I sat here and thought to myself, with all the firefighters, the whole fire department, the OSBI, medical examiner, and local sheriff's office, how in the world does this get missed? The body was apparently still very noticeable. Poor per Lorraine, she stated, you could see he had on gray sweatpants, a flannel shirt with a regular white t-shirt. Of course, where the burns were located, there were holes in his clothes, but also you could see boot prints down his entire torso area where he had been walked on the day before. People were walking on this body. How did you not see it? After finding Danny's body, Lorraine calls 911 and lets them know that her and Jay had found another body. And of course, authorities confirm that the body is in fact Danny Freeman. And like Kathy, he did not die as a result of the fire. The autopsy states that Danny was shot in the face, which indicates that his face was facing the attacker. The report was very clear that the burns from the fire happened post-mortem, which means just like Kathy, he was also dead before the fire had started. Since both Kathy and Danny's bodies were found, the theory changes again. They say, quote, oh, well, maybe Laura and Ashley did this, unquote. Maybe they got upset about Danny fighting with Kathy. As I mentioned earlier, he had a bad rep with domestic violence. But no, I don't believe this one either. They have arson with now a double homicide with two minors missing and no one seems to be looking for Ashley or Laura. But with the second body being found in the same area, they take the crime scene back. <laughs> Hallelujah. With nothing being done to find the girls, the Bible's taken into their own hands and reach out to local radio stations, and within 24 hours, they have over 500 people searching. Keep in mind, you guys, they have hundreds of people at this point searching around these 40 acres with the OSBI still on the grounds of the crime scene, but they're just they're just sitting around. They're just watching all these people searching and walking all over the evidence, and they do nothing. It just baffles me. I have no words. But anyone knows that if something is found by one of the volunteers, it automatically removes all of its evidential value and becomes inadmissible in a courtroom. After searching all 40 acres, forwards and backwards, they have no sign of, Ash of Ashley or Laura. But they did uncover more evidence. They find some belongings that indicate the girls did not leave the area on their own free will. They find Laura's keys in the ignition, as we mentioned earlier, with her purse and money along with ID inside. They never put out an Amber Alert on these girls, and they were never documented into the NCIC. That is the National Crime Information Center. It is a national database that alerts law enforcement about people missing or ones involved in crimes. According to Laura's mother, the girls were not listed into the NCIC until she went into town and spoke with Steve Nutter, the OSBI agent at the time. He had told Laureen that once she finished speaking with him, he would take care of it and the document um, or that he would document the information into the database of the girls. So, <laughs> Lorraine being the badass mama she is, she asked the deputy to verify that it was done, and sure enough, it wasn't. 
And of course, OSVI agent at the time, Steve Nutter, declined to comment on why the girls were never documented into the NCIC and why him or his team didn't mount a concerted search for the missing minors in the days after the fire. But according to a criminal investigator, a missing juvenile is considered a top tier. There's no such thing as a wait 24 to 48 hour rule. In almost every state, if not every state, it is the law that a search must be conducted immediately and the children should be entered into the national database. If they are believed to be in danger, there are Amber Alerts that should be issued. And obviously, the sooner you start looking, the greater the chance of locating them in a smaller radius. Again, the Freeman family still believe their main suspect is the Craig County Sheriff's Department. During the time of the investigation to this day and time, the Craig County Sheriff's Office are on their third sheriff. 2000 is when Sheriff George Vaughn resigned and had Jimmy Souter step in for the job from 2001 to 2017. Tips began to roll in shortly after Jimmy Souter was elected sheriff. Crazy ones that were stated by multiple informants that they allegedly saw Ashley and Laura at a New Year's Eve party just days after the fire, which gave me an idea that maybe they were held hostage against their will. As you have probably guessed it, there was a huge range of drugs, specifically methamphetamines, in the Welsh area. These informants swear to that statement of the New Year's Eve party that they had viewed a tape showing a young girl with dirty blonde hair tied up by the wrists on her knees and was sexually assaulted and later recognized the home of a man named Chester Shadwick. So the OSBI obtains a search warrant to search his home. They are primarily looking for that VHS tape. They end up finding five tapes and one roll of film. But the crazy thing is they didn't find anything remotely close to that specific tape with the girls on it. That search was conducted on June 21st of 2001. So we know now that no physical evidence linked Chester Shadwick to the crimes against Ashley and Laura. On July 26, 2001, the OSBI searched another home just six weeks after the Shadwick search. This home belonged to Paul Glover Sr. and Paul Glover Jr., not far from the Shadwick's home. It was said they were both um, meth dealers as well. The reason why they decided to look into the Glovers was due to the fact that another tip came out they had the girls at one point after the New Year's Eve party, took them to their home where they were given drugs and was sexually assaulted. They searched the entire property and the house of the Glovers with volunteers and cadaver dogs with the whole, whole nine yards, you know, and ended up finding this red spot in the carpet of the home in one of the back bedrooms. That appears to investigators to be blood. So, of course, they ripped the carpet and removed it from the Glovers' home for further testing. But when the tests come back, it's inconclusive and was determined to be the blood um, or determined to not be blood of the human. Whether or not the Glovers were ever actually involved in the disappearance of Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible, they don't know. Do I think they killed the girls? No. Do I think they sexually assaulted them at some point? Yes, absolutely. Too many people knew about them and their connection to this case. The OSBI finally speaks with Paul Glover Jr. And of course, he denies having anything to do with the girls. Not surprising. Again, no physical evidence was found to connect the Glovers to the crimes against the Freemans and Laura Bible. It was never charged in any relation to the case. Now, moving forward, six months went by and the case was straight cold. No suspects, no new tips. But in May of 2002, there is a break in the case. But unfortunately, 
you got to wait till next week to find out what else is going to happen with this case. So, so crazy. It is quite long, so I will break it down into parts. Sorry I had to end it this way, but I will catch you guys back next week, Monday, for part two. See you later. You guys, didn't I tell you it was going to be a good one? Thank you so much for tuning in to episode four, part one of Makeup and Murder. I cannot wait to get more into this case. Everything's going to tie in together and you're going to understand even more why I did everything the way I did. I can't wait for you guys to hear. So with that being said, let's get into the chat. Let's talk about it. Find me on Facebook, Makeup and Murder, or on Instagram, Makeup and Murder Podcast. Find me on all platforms. And if you do not mind, please, please, please write a review, comment, rate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. And yeah, that is a wrap. You guys stay safe. See you soon. Bye. Bye.